0: Good morning, morning. welcome to Bible study this morning, a special welcome to those of you here in the gym this morning at St. Paul's and those listening on AM 850 KFUO in the St. Louis area and around the world on KFUO.org. As is our usual practice, we'll be going through the lessons for the following week. I realized on the title of the the handout I put February 2nd twice, but these are the lessons for next week, uh, I do promise. And if you want to hand out, they're over in the corner there, along with some Bibles. But before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for allowing us to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to study your word, to study what you have done for us. We pray that as we study these texts today, that you would guide our hearts and that your spirit would lead us to your will, and that all we would do, both here as a church and in our lives would be to the glory of your holy name. Amen. To begin with, we're going to look at the Old Testament lesson. But before we begin, I always like to try and highlight there's usually a theme between the three uh, scripture lessons the lectionary assigns. And sometimes it's pretty obvious what the theme is. Today's one of those days, however, where the theme may not be as easily apparent. So I'm not going to tell you what the theme or what I believe at least the theme is. Of the three lessons uh, before we begin, as I sometimes do, but we're going to go through some of the lessons first, and then maybe we'll see if we can ascertain what the theme is. The Old Testament reading assigned for next week is from Isaiah chapter 58, and the technical assigned reading is Isaiah 58, 3 through 9a. But if you notice on your handout, we have Isaiah 58, 1. 11 I did that because the surrounding text actually gives us some pretty important context and it can be pretty helpful in understanding just what Isaiah is saying uh, to the people in this section of Isaiah 58 so to begin with we read Isaiah 58 verse 1 cry aloud do not hold back lift up your voice like a trumpet declare to my people their transgression To the house of Jacob, their sins. So right away we see that this is God speaking to the prophet Isaiah. And his instruction is pretty clear. (laughs) Go proclaim the people's sins to them. Not exactly the favorite message, right, if you were a prophet. You know, that, okay, i got to go tell everyone about their sin, where they're falling short. And when he says... Uh, declare their transgressions like a trumpet, that's a euphemism or an idiom to essentially say, this is for all people. This isn't just for one small section of the people who are perhaps transgressing the law in a particular way, but this is something that all of the people of Jacob, the house of Israel, need to hear. And we continue into verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Here we start to see what the problem is, what the specific sin Isaiah is being called to address is in this text. The way it's formed in the Hebrew, the implication is when we read... uh, as if they are a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God, the implication is they're not actually doing that. They are forsaking righteousness, they are forsaking the judgment of their God. But they were looking like they were not. They were looking like they were, in fact, outwardly looking as if they were pursuing righteousness. And then we get into verse 3 and you can see perhaps maybe the misguided thoughts that some of the people in Israel were having. And here God quotes back to Isaiah the complaints that the people were lifting up to him when he says, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers." In a sense, they were trying to engage in a sort of quid pro quo type of religion. We're going to fast, we're going to go worship on the Sabbath, and then the expectation is because we do that, now we have checked all the boxes we needed to, so God, grant me what I want. That's not something we'd ever struggle with in the 21st century, is it? going to church just to check off a box so you got enough God to get you through the rest of your week. And it doesn't matter what you do the rest of the week because you spend an hour and a half or two hours or three hours in church on Sunday. And so you feel perhaps, or people are tempted to feel like we've checked the box, that I've done what I needed to do so God will give me perhaps what I want. In a sense, the complaints of the people are, why do we do any of this religious stuff, the fasting and the humbling of ourselves, if God isn't going to reward us. It's funny as we talk about this text, I'm always drawn, especially on today, of all days, to memories of when I was a child. And I will confess that this is when I was young, like five, six, seven, eight, oftentimes before my team played in a big game like the Super Bowl. I'd always pray for something very specific. And if you know anything about me, it's a long story, but I'm a very big Tennessee Titans fan. And so there was one Super Bowl in particular when I was about eight where I was very angry that God did not give me what I wanted because my team lost by about that much. To a team you guys were probably all rooting for at the time, though maybe not so much now. So I did find it a little ironic that this is the text that we, I have assigned to teach today when I couldn't help but remember all those times before a big game where I'd pray, God, let my team win. And then when they lost, God, why didn't you listen to me? Why do I even do this, right? Now, that, like I said, that's when I was very little, right? That's not what I currently still do, though I do hope they win, and they often lose, but... Uh, we continue into verse 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So if you notice at the back half of verse 3 and throughout verse 4, God reminds the people that though you're fasting, that same day you claim to be fasting and humbling yourself, you're seeking after your own pleasures. You oppress all your workers and in the Hebrew it's kind of a little bit of a strange uh, way it's worded it, it literally is you treat people like animals like working animals and you'll see that in some of the language uh, God kind of bringing that theme up throughout this section that it wasn't just that you were making your workers work potentially on the Sabbath or indentured servants work But you were not treating them rightly. You were treating them as animals. And you fast only to get to quarrel or to hit with a wicked fist. So what's God's answer to this suggestion that, hey, you're not being faithful to us, God, because we're going to church. We're fasting. We're obeying the Sabbath, right? Why don't you give us what we want? Why aren't our requests being heard? After all, we're humbling ourselves just like you want. Of course, the reality of that was they were not. And that's exactly what God tells Isaiah to remind them of. In verse 5, God continues his rebuke of the people. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord now maybe at first glance it's not quite apparent but essentially what's being called out here is God saying it's not just to go through the motions it's not just showing up and making a public show of humbling yourself and bowing down that's not what he calls his people to worship him like to just check the box, an outward box, so it just appears as if we're doing what he says. And so he contrasts the, I guess, uh, the lip service the people were paying him with the fast that he in fact does call them to. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh here in Isaiah 58 it's reminiscent of several other parts of Isaiah, including one that stuck out to me was Isaiah 29, where God talks about the people honoring him with just their lips, yet in their hearts are only the commandments of men. And again, in Isaiah 58, we kind of have a very similar thing happening that the people are outwardly showing as if they are being faithful to God, and yet in their own hearts and how they live their lives on a daily basis. They're not living as God commands them to live. And that yoke, again, is a reference back to how they were oppressing the people, that they were treating perhaps their workers like oxen or work animals. And so when he says, "Is not the fast I choose, a fast uh, to undo the straps of the yoke and let the oppressed go free, He is making a clear rebuke of the manner in which the people of Israel were acting at that time. And then, if you notice at the last part of verse 7, you know, he lists a bunch of things in verse 6 and 7 to let the oppressed go free, break every yoke, share bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked, cover him. And then, that last part of verse 7 to not hide yourself. From your own flesh. What do you think that could mean to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Who might he be talking about? You have any ideas? Exactly. Family that these people were so self-centered and self-focused these same people who are complaining that hey look how humble we are we're fasting we're going to worship they're being so self-centered and self-focused that even when these things happen to their own family they're not helping them out and so it kinda highlights just how selfish self-centered self-enriching these people were acting the same people who are complaining to god that. He no longer listens to them when they're humble and checking all the boxes they thought they needed to check. I was looking, doing some research for this text, and I, it struck me as he mentions the, the, the oppressed several times. We have some evidence, we don't have specifically from Israel necessarily, but evidence of other societies in that area that oftentimes the lenders and those who would maybe help out people who had fallen on hard times would charge as much as 75% interest on any amount that they would allow people to borrow. So what does that mean? You have one drought season, one bad year, one family illness perhaps, and you could be looking at a life of indentured servitude trying just to pay back that interest that perhaps you had to borrow. Now, in today's world, we don't have 75% interest, thankfully, hopefully not. But we do have a lot of things we like to hold on to and hold over people sometimes. Sometimes even our own family members, because they, we feel like, hey, we've helped you out, now it's your turn to try and you know, make things right. I think one of the really strong implications of this text is a reminder that we're not called to (laughs), lord what we may have over people and use it to oppress them, to guilt them, to, in our own ways, emotionally perhaps even enslave them. But we're called to be a forgiving people. We're called to be a people that goes and does help those who are less fortunate not so that we can charge an exorbitant interest rate or try and get back ten times what we had given them but just because that's what we're called to do we see a little bit of that as we continue into verse eight then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily your righteousness shall go before you the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard so it's not just showing up on the Sabbath or fasting just going through the motions but rather it's living out the life God calls you to live it's following his commandments showing his love to others and that's when your righteousness will go before you so you people of Israel who think you're so righteous, that you're doing so well and God has abandoned in you, well, try try living how God actually calls you to live and then see what will happen. And of course, the thing we realize even about ourselves is that if that was the basis of our righteousness, if our own actions were the basis of our righteousness, well, there would be no righteousness for us to be led by. We continue into verse nine. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. This section of the Old Testament, the section of Isaiah specifically, it's very interesting where this falls in the context of Isaiah. Isaiah. Uh, If you have your physical Bibles or maybe on your phone, if you want to turn just a few chapters down to Isaiah 61, what's sometimes called is perhaps the fifth servant song. We read, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn Why I say it's interesting where that occurs is that verse in Isaiah 61 those verses Are what Jesus quotes when he goes into the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 And after reading from the scroll of Isaiah says today this scripture has been fulfilled so what's the implication of this last part of isaiah 58 verses 8 through 11 it's a reminder that these people the people of israel they themselves cannot do the things that god calls us to do the things that would make themselves righteous rather their reliance on God Himself to make them righteous. If we look at this in view of what Christ has done. You might notice the last verse of Isaiah 58, uh, verse 11. Uh, the last part of that might remind you of another section of the Gospel that you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose water does not fail. What perhaps does that remind you of? Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And if you have your physical Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 4. It's Jesus and the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. And he says, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And later on in John 4:13 Jesus said to her everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life at first glance this section of Isaiah 58 might just seem like a pretty strong critique against the people of Israel but even as we sit here in the 21st century, in all our comforts and our own thoughts about our own righteousness and how well we've done, we're all, we're even sitting in Bible class this week, right? It's a reminder that of our own doing, we're not righteous at all. That we're reliant on God to declare us righteous and that in Christ he does, in fact, declare us righteousness, that Christ's righteousness is the righteousness that we ourselves could never attain for ourselves. So at this point, I'll open it up if there are any questions on Isaiah chapter 58. All right, no questions? All right, let's move on then to the epistle reading. This is a pretty well known section of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. And think if perhaps you can see a theme that is a connection with what we just read in Isaiah 58. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you. testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now at first glance you may think, okay, what's Paul really saying here? And in the context of that first century Corinthian church, this would have been a pretty good reminder for them because at this time there were professional, I don't know what you'd call it, debaters, professional orators, traveling guys who would come to the city center and using elegant speech, using specific rhetorical methods. Essentially, it was entertainment for the people of this day. You know, they didn't have TV or Super Bowl commercials to look forward to. So they'd come and listen to these guys who had these big, elegant, long speeches and great rhetoric. And Paul's reminding them that that's not how he came. He did not come as one of those traveling debaters or traveling orators with these elegant words and this perfect speech, a deep, rich, you know, voice that really just was very soothing to hear. No, he came deciding to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, this just highlights that he wasn't trying to come use some sort of rhetorical device to try and convince the people, you know, this is the truth because of his own intelligence or his own wit or his own ability to woo them with his speech. But it was only Jesus Christ and him crucified. Continuing into verse 3, we read, And I was with you in weakness and in fear... And in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So, again, if you think about a context in which people would often gather together to listen to elegant wise men come and give these great long speeches of elegant words and lofty ideas. Paul's reminder to the Corinthian church is that when he came, it didn't look like something that the world would say should convince you to believe at all. Yet he came in the Holy Spirit and in the power of God. And then in verse 5, he answers why this may have been, or why it is. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's a reminder to the Corinthian church that their faith is not based on the fact that these great orators came and convinced them that this Jesus was a man who was God in the flesh who came to die for them and forgave them of all their sins. Rather, it was a guy who couldn't really speak well at all. It was a guy who, by the world standards, should not have been able to impart any sort of wisdom wisdom on them because he wasn't a good speaker, so to speak. In fact, there's even some thought, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh Paul references is, references is but there's even some thought that perhaps some commentators say that uh, maybe he even had a speech impediment or a stutter. Now, we don't have evidence for that, but it's, I thought it was pretty interesting when I was looking at that It would make sense when you read that thorn in the side, thorn in the flesh section, that a guy who has to speak a lot, he had a speech impediment, it would be a pretty big thorn in his flesh. We continue into verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Again, it's not the sophisticated wisdom of a professional orator that led them to faith. It is not some brilliant rhetorical device, some brilliant form of arguing, some entertaining speech that led them to... To the gospel but the power of God is what imparted wisdom that hidden wisdom of God and when he says hidden there what he means is it doesn't stand to make natural reason or sense and yet in Christ that wisdom is revealed we continue into verse 8 none of the rulers of this age understood this Reminders that it's not on the rulers of this age those who would appear wise to the world or those who would appear to have some sort of great earthly wisdom or power that we rest our faith After all if that's Who we could look to for our faith they would to have crucified the Lord of glory And when he says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, no heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, Uh, this is actually one of uh, the more difficult verses in the New Testament, mainly because we don't know what Paul is quoting. There is a section of Isaiah 64 that's vaguely similar, but it doesn't quite match up. So when he says, as it is written, there's several possibilities. One is, it's a paraphrase of Isaiah 64. Another is it could be from another letter that was written amongst the Corinthian church. Paul wrote other letters than what we have here. After all, he talks about already visiting them and already speaking to them. But that doesn't mean that what he says here, just because we don't have where it was written, doesn't mean that what he says is not accurate. But it's a reminder that what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the hearts of man imagined, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We continue into verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God So you can kinda see how Paul sets this argument up he reminds them first of all that he wasn't exactly some great orator when he came and proclaimed this gospel to them he wasn't what the world would say is someone who should be able to convince them of anything based on the standards of the day He's not the type of guy who has some great rhetorical device or entertaining form of speech that he goes back to to really get the people fired up. But rather, he gives them the gospel, and through that gospel, the Spirit of God comes to them. And it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can know the things of God. So that when we look at our faith and we wonder, well, so... What if we didn't like Paul all of a sudden? These people in Corinth were maybe thinking, what if this guy seems sort of foolish to us? You know, he's really not that good a speaker. It's a reminder that it's not about Paul. Your faith is not about what necessarily Paul as that person said, but rather that what he said was from God and that the Holy Spirit was active and working through his words. Or who has understood the mind of the Lord as so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Again, he highlights this is not human wisdom he's trying to bring forth and bring to light, but rather the wisdom of God. And he admits to the natural world, to the natural person, the person of the world, the gospel seems foolish seems silly it doesn't match what the world would say is a good thing that this guy had to die for all these people that people are sinful that they themselves can't earn their righteousness before god That those who are focused on the things of this world and this world alone it seems like a very foolish thought it seems like folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And it is the Spirit which gives us, the Holy Spirit from God, which gives us our faith. It's The Spirit that works through the message, as Paul would say in Romans, that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is the Word of God. And then he reminds them that don't let the world... Essentially get you down because it seems foolish to them When he says the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one Now that's not a license to say hey if i'm doing something wrong don't judge me because i'm a spiritual person That's not at all what he's saying But rather when the world says this is silly or this is foolish or folly He reminds them it's not the world's judgment That they are subject to the world does not have and the world has not understood the mind of the Lord so as to try and instruct God on how he ought to act or tell God who he is supposed to be. But we know we who are in Christ because we have the mind of Christ. It's a pretty Powerful reminder, especially in today's day and age, where so often we're told, hey, that's outdated. Yeah, that's nice, you may still go to church, but you know, that's just all silly fables or tales or things people told themselves in ancient days to make them feel better about their problems in life. We're in a society where very much the world looks around, looks at the Christian church, looks at the Bible and says, that seems pretty foolish and silly. It's an issue that we face all the time, and it's an issue that the Corinthian church faced even in the first century. And yet Paul's reminder to them is the same reminder he gives to us, that it's not based on the wisdom of the world that we have faith, and it's not based on whether the world says it's cool to be a Christian or it's okay to believe what the Bible says. It's not about what the world... Gives us permission to do. In fact, it's just the opposite. The world can't tell God who he is. Rather, God is God. And through the Holy Spirit and through that message of Christ, you have been given the mind of Christ to discern the things that are of God. So I'll open it up at this point. If we have any questions on First Corinthians, any of the sections there... Okay, so if I had to ask you at this point, after two readings, I'll ask one question to you. I know this is a little more lecture style, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you see as perhaps a theme that is arising Let's look at the gospel reading. We'll see if we can't get a little closer. I told you it was going to be more difficult to ascertain the theme today. I did warn you, so that's okay. The gospel reading is, again, a pretty well-known section of the gospel of Matthew. It occurs right after the Beatitudes, (coughs) directly after uh, the Beatitudes. And Jesus is still speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5. And he says to them, starting at verse 13, you are the salt of, of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet you are the salt of the world salt in the ancient Near East was a very valuable commodity salt today is still a very valuable commodity. Just have one meal without salt and you'll realize how valuable of a commodity it can be. But it was used back then for the preservation of food or taste. And so if you are the salt of the earth and that salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be? restored Now there's something interesting in the Greek here. There's actually a little bit of ambiguity if we take it as the ESV Translated it. How shall its saltiness be restored? What is the saltiness referring to? The salt right how shall the saltiness of the salt be restored But in the Greek, it's actually a little ambiguous. It could be either that. That's a perfectly acceptable grammatical way to look at it. Or it could be, if you're the salt of the earth and the salt has lost its taste, how shall the earth's saltiness be restored? If you, as followers of Christ, you are the salt of the earth, you throw away your saltiness. How is the earth going to know. Essentially what saltiness is. Or another way. How is the earth going to be preserved. Or even restored. And that kind of changes a little bit the perspective. And again I don't want to harp on too much about that. But I did find it pretty interesting that that ambiguity is there. And I think. Perhaps, again, this could be a potentially purposeful ambiguity. That if you as the salt of the earth have lost your saltiness, how is your saltiness going to be restored is correct. But so too, if you are the salt of the earth, and you lose your saltiness, how is the earth going to be restored? How is its saltiness going to be restored is also correct as well. So it's seemingly a kind of innocuous verse that actually has some pretty powerful implications in our own walk as Christians, but also for the whole world. In verse 14, we read Jesus tell his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I kind of love verses like this because they're the ones Jesus gives to his disciples and sometimes even the Pharisees and the scribes, and you can't refute it, right? If you're a city on a hill. If you're the light of the world. and You're on that hill. You literally cannot be hidden. The thing at the top of the mountain has nowhere to hide. And he says, you are the light of the world. And so they're probably thinking, okay, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Jesus, perhaps they were thinking. And then he tells them, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. They're thinking, okay, again, correct, you're right. No one lights a light and then just covers it. And this is a day in, where there was no... Uh, they didn't have cell phone flashlights, you know, to see around if they lost their light. They needed their light. So then he reminds them, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that's kind of that gotcha moment, right? They're thinking, okay, we're tracking. We're the light of the world. We're sitting on a hill. We can't be hidden. Yes, we're a light. You know, no one's. You know, can't put a basket over us. We get it. But then, what's the implication of that? You have to let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. Here, Jesus. Addresses a pretty important question, and it's kind of a motivational issue. It's the same issue, perhaps, that the people in Isaiah 58 were dealing with. Why do we do this stuff? Why do we live our lives in a certain way? In Isaiah 58, the people are thinking, "Well, it's to check a box so that God listens to us." All right? That's, if you remember back to about a half hour ago, we talked about. They were complaining to God, you know, we're fasting, we're attending worship, we're praying. And at that point, they would have had lots of prayers memorized. Uh, It would have been a a rote memorization. Their motivation was so that they could glorify themselves. And kind of that quid pro quo relationship I talked about so that God would listen to them. If they check enough boxes, God's going to start hearing what they have to say, answering their request. And here Jesus kind of addresses that same motivational question. He says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you who follow Christ, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're the city on the hill that can't be hidden the light in the home that's not going to be put under a basket. So you have to let your light shine. You have to be salty if you're going to be the salt of the earth. But it's not so that people can look at you and say, oh boy. There goes Tom. What a salty person he is. No, not in that sense, of course. Or there goes Susie. Boy, she's just the nicest person ever. If only we could be more like Susie. No, that's not why we're called to live our lives in a certain way. And this is what Jesus addresses. It's to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're called to live our lives in a certain way, to do those things that God talked about in Isaiah 58, to feed the hungry, help those who are down on their luck or oppressed, Because it gives glory to our Father in heaven. And if this is where the section stopped, well, we'd have a very law-heavy sermon next week, wouldn't we? But of course, as we talked about in Isaiah 61, and as you'll see in the last part here of Matthew 5, and this reading is split very directly into two sections, Christ gives a reminder To his disciples to not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished You notice that word real quick, this is kind of an interesting point. We would say, we we still use this word in this sense, an iota, right? I I followed that to the T. I didn't mess up one single iota of what the request was, perhaps. Well, the Greek word, or the Greek letter, is a iota, which is why I said it like that. But it's interesting, that's an idiom that is still carried through, even to this day, one we can understand. Uh, Therefore, whoever relaxes... One of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now we find ourselves kind of in a similar situation to what we had in Isaiah 58. Where we're called to live in a certain way and the obvious implication, we don't have to look very far back in our lives to realize we fail pretty miserably to to live in that way. That in our own lives, we have at times not just relaxed the commandments, but sometimes outright disobeyed them. And so then we're left wondering, well, what does that mean that... Our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Those were the people who spent their entire lives making sure they didn't transgress any of the commandments. What does that mean for us when Jesus says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven? It means very much, you need someone to give you that righteousness that you could not, of your own doing, ever have. Just like Jesus said in Luke 4 when he read from Isaiah 61 that he has come to release those who are in prison, to satisfy the hungry, to help the poor and the oppressed. And says today in this scripture, it has been fulfilled. Here, Jesus tells his disciples that in him, the law and the prophets, they're not abolished, but they're fulfilled. And we know as those living with the knowledge of the post-resurrected Christ that he in fact did fulfill the law to every Yoda or iota, but not a dot passed away from it. And that he gives us freely in our faith that righteousness that we of our own doing could never and would never have ourselves. That God gives us the righteousness that we could never earn. You know these verses are definitely verses that you need to look at in the context of the whole story of Scripture, that we are reminded in these verses that we are called to live in a certain way, but it's not the way of the world, and it's not just in a certain way, so that we check enough boxes so that we look really good. But we're called to live in a certain way because we've been given that gift of righteousness that we could never earn ourselves and live in that certain way so that we would glorify the God that gave us that righteousness through the death of his only begotten son, the one who would fulfill the law and the prophets. So at this point, we got about... Five minutes left. I'll open it up if we have any questions on the gospel lesson, or on any of the three lessons, or perhaps even how they fit together. Before we dive into the psalm, real quickly. Any questions? No. All right. Let's look at Psalm 112. And again, it's interesting in the lectionary the. Only the first nine verses uh, are the appointed psalm. They leave out the last verse, which you might see why they do, but I think it's a really important reminder, that last verse. So we're going to go through this pretty quickly because we're a little short on time. Psalm 112, starting at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. This is the type of psalm we like to read, right? This is the type of psalm we read, all right, I'm on board with this. We've got offspring who are mighty, a generation of upright who will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Maybe we start thinking, okay... I I don't mind what the psalm has to say about me. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and merciful and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved, and he will be remembered forever. Again, maybe we're thinking, okay, I like what this is starting to say. I, I could see myself as... This sort of guy, that wouldn't be or girl. This isn't that. This isn't a bad thing at all. And especially, it gets even better if you look at verse seven. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely, and he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted. In honor. Now, again, we might be thinking, well, well, this seems really good so far. I like this psalm. Maybe we should talk about this psalm every Sunday. But I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this psalm is not about you or any one human being, one sinful human being. But this psalm is very much about Christ who would come and delight in the commandments of of God. And not just the commandments that are convenient, but are in all the commandments of God. He would be the one who conducts his affairs with justice, not just with those who are upstanding citizens, but even with the tax collectors and the sinners He was not afraid of bad news. His heart was firm, trusting in the Lord. He will not be afraid, and he was not afraid, even unto death itself, until he looks in triumph on his adversaries, defeating sin, death, and the devil. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Now it starts to talk about us, but we're not the ones being exalted. We're the poor. And if you want to get into verse 10, the part that is traditionally left out of next week, this also speaks about us. This is the part of the psalm that's about us. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Without Christ, we are that wicked man. But of course, we are not without Christ. We very much are the poor in need of that free distribution of grace and righteousness, That we could never hope to obtain for ourselves. And we are the ones who, although we should be treated like animals, that God has every right to oppress in our sin, He frees us from the greatest yoke, the greatest slavery of all, the slavery to our sin, the slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And it's not because it seems super cool to the world that we believe these things, but it is through the power and the wisdom that's found only in God. In his word, in the gospel proclaimed for all people. And as those who are in that gospel, then we are called to be that salt of the earth, to be that light of the world. To go forth and do good works for the glory of the very God who sent his son to die for us so that we might be free from the oppression of sin, death, and the devil. So it's interesting, I, like I said, as we think about the theme for these readings on Sunday, I think the pretty uh, important theme that it, it recognizes, that these texts recognize is that we don't do things we're called to do because that means we're going to get what we deserve or that we somehow show up to church or are in Bible class or, you know, pray faithfully because that's the only... I, if I check enough boxes, God's going to hear me. But because of the reality that we fall so short in our sin and our human nature... We fall short of those expectations, short of the righteousness of God himself, and yet he still gives us his grace and his mercy and his righteousness through a very great sacrifice, a sacrifice of the one who did meet the standard. So with that, we're just about out of time. I'll open up to any final questions. We haven't had any yet, but... Yes? Yes? Well, that was the theme. The the, so, the, the overall theme is simply this that we don't worship God because it checks boxes or it seems wise to the world or because it glorifies ourselves or makes us look good, but we worship God because He has given us a great gift, the gift of His Son. We are His ambassadors. That's a great way to put it. Or, as Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth, right? You are that salt, you are that light but it's not to glorify yourself, but to give glory to your Father in heaven. All right, any other questions? Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we reflect on what your word has shown us today and what you've done for us today and every day, that gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, which gives salvation to all those who would believe, we pray that... You would continue to guide, guide us and bless us in your will, that you would show us your desires and your will in our lives and that in all that we do, it would be truly to the glory of your holy, gracious and merciful name. And it is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen.